Have you ever been discipled? On the flip side, have you ever discipled someone else? What did that relationship look like? Was it informal and organic? Or did you meet on a regular basis? And what impact, good or bad, did it have on your life long term? In my interview today, I'm talking with Jonathan Dodson, the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas, about what a gospel-centered approach to discipleship actually entails. He highlights the importance of transparency for everyone involved, why the long view of sanctification is so important for us to hold on to, and how to move forward when we feel hurt or betrayed by a mentor. Jonathan is the author of Gospel-Centered Discipleship from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Hi, Matt. It's good to be with you. So discipleship is one of those words uh, that we, we've all used probably, and we certainly hear a lot in the context of the church. Uh, we hear from our pastors. Uh, and yet I think sometimes people mean different things by the word. Uh, and so I wonder if you could help us start off by uh, explaining what you mean when you say the word discipleship. Discipleship is something that happens all the time. We're discipled by the social media influences that we take in. We're discipled by our mentors, by our community, um, by the rhythms of our life. We are shaped and molded. So there's a shaping, discipling influence always at work in our cities, in our towns, in our homes. And so the concept of discipleship even didn't originate with with Jesus and the 12 disciples. There were the Greek philosophers who predated him, like Socrates and Plato, and they discipled their followers. They were called disciples. So I think it's important to recognize that this constant influence, Mm -hmm. and when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to Jesus, there's a very unique discipleship that he is attempting. And you could perhaps break it out into three things, rational, relational, and missional. Now, Socrates, his uh, pupil, he didn't like calling them disciples because of the kind of strictly rational connotation, uh, that there was more going on than a transfer of information. And that's also true of the followers of Jesus. Mm. But rational is a component, you might say theological, that Jesus does teach. Jesus does tell stories. Jesus does communicate the gospel of the kingdom in a way that we think and Mm. then invokes belief. But it's not just theological or rational. It's also relational. Uh, Jesus comes with disciples attached. Uh, Communities are born. Uh, Christ is the head. We are the body. And so there is a uh, relational dimension to being a disciple as well as a theological or rational. And when we say we're going to put our faith in him and follow him with our all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with our soul, with our aspirations, there is an aligning of our mission, that discipleship is missional. We're yielding to God's mission in the world. And Jesus is king, and he directs my life in line with the kingdom of God, and I want to bring people into that kingdom through evangelism and through works of mercy and justice. So Christian discipleship is about making, maturing, 
and multiplying disciples in Jesus, with Jesus, and for Jesus. Mm, yeah. As you think about your own church and maybe your own background as a pastor, is there a, a dominant kind of emphasis in, in when it comes to discipleship that you've, that you've encountered that you think is maybe most common in your experience? Really been phases of influences on me. Huh. So when I was young and in my 20s, I got kicked out of Bible school. And when I came back uh, to the States from, from England, there was a bit of shame. Uh, uh, and I kind of wanted to make up for that shame. I wanted to correct my wrongs. And it was in this kind of shame-laden, you know, works-oriented discipleship that I actually introduced to the real idea of discipleship and uh, that it came through kind of a one-on-one uh, relationship with a Campus Crusade staff member who took me under his wing um, with another uh, close friend of mine and um, we met regularly to study the scriptures, uh, to do evangelism, to go on road trips, to go to concerts and we did the rational theological part of it, studying the scriptures, and but it was also relational. We spent time eating and laughing and sharing together. And of course, there is a deeper relational thing in that we are all encountering the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's probably one of the dominant ideas of discipleship, probably, that we have in the church. You know, that is that, you know, discipleship is where you have a mentor figure with a mentee, often in a smaller group or even one-on-one kind of context. Uh, it seems like you're kind of suggesting, though, that that's not maybe all there is to it, or there's there's some nuances that are missing in that idea. So I picked up the rational theological aspect and kind of ran with that. So doing Bible studies in Romans at 6 a.m., uh, showing my disciples all the things that I knew, and it was kind of theology and knowledge uh, that I was confident in. But the things that I was less confident about that I was failing in, where I struggled, I I kind of hid the ugly. And so as I began to reproduce disciples without transparency, without a humble and repentant recognition uh, that, that I have failures as well as successes, well, that, that had a distorting effect. And uh, it's so important that our disciples perceive our own weaknesses and we magnify God's strength as well as sharing the successes that we've had in obeying and following Jesus. In discipling, we're going to disciple out of our strengths and the temptation is to not also disciple out of our weakness. Yeah, you write in the book that you could, you were making disciples that could share their faith but not their failures. Do you feel like that's something that you saw modeled in this guy who was discipling you? Or was it just he was doing a good job with that and you just somehow, the break there was a breakdown with them when you went and tried to do the same? Probably a mix of both. I, I don't remember so many years ago. He, he was a great guy, great leader. Um, I'm sure that he was honest about his struggles. But I, I think there's also, in my youth, I grasped onto what I saw was good and tried to reproduce it in others. And in my youthful zeal to do what's right, 
uh, and self-righteousness and accomplishing kingdom things, I, I was distorted by kind of that one aspect. And I, it goes back to that early part of my story of wanting to make up for the shame. So mm. uh, to acknowledge further weakness would be to compound the shame, but to, to achieve, to succeed, to do things right would be to erase some of the shame. And um, I didn't really grasp that that Jesus was already proud of me, that he was always pleased with me uh, because of his work to draw me into his own love and righteousness and resurrection life. Um, I didn't get that he was head over heels mm. for me. I, I just kind of thought um, he forgave the sins up to becoming a Christian. And after that, it was kind of on my own. And so the gospel was missing. The gospel center that the gospel that saved me was not hmm. sanctifying me. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into that gospel centered idea uh, in, in just a minute. But I, I wonder, do you think um, do you think this is a common problem in the church that discipleship is happening uh, in a kind of performative type of way and that, that isn't as transparent as. Uh, as it should be, like how I guess how central is transparency to the call to disciple, and and then uh, is that something that we've kind of lost sight of? It's it's interesting. People come from different places, so I think in some quarters of the church, transparency is held up so high to eclipse obedience and repentance. Let's just all be as authentic as we can. Let's all put our junk out there. Let's. Um, be brutally honest about our struggles uh, by opening up and showing one another our flaws. And certain personality tests uh, have encouraged this kind of self-awareness of your own limitations and brokenness. But if we're not careful, mm. that becomes brandished. That's a um, that we that we kind of become preoccupied with vulnerability, but not with repentance that we're happy to look at our sin and weakness, but we're slow to look at Christ and his strength. And uh, there's less aspiration towards holiness and towards maturity and towards beholding becoming like Christ. And so then there's another performative element there at this time with the kind of confessional, uh, transparent uh, approach to discipleship. Yeah. Uh, so what have been some of the most helpful, practical things that you've done, habits maybe that you've incorporated into your discipling relationships to try to cultivate that that honesty and transparency in both direction as a discipler and, a, and with a disciplee, um, especially in light of, I'm thinking of pastors and church leaders where I, I, my sense is that they can struggle sometimes to know how to bring in that appropriate transparency and share what they're struggling with without maybe perhaps undercutting the confidence that people have in them as their spiritual leaders, as their pastor. Uh, what does that look like practically uh, in your in your life? Well, one of the little mantras that we use, uh, it, it's disciples uh, rejoice in Christ, repent of sin, and reproduce disciples. And so my first inclination in a relationship with someone is to, to, to get um, to that first spot of, you know, repentance isn't bad news. It's great news. It's, you know, as Robbie Mur Robert Murray Machine said, for every look at sin, look 10 times at Christ. And so 
let's let's look at our sin. Let's expose it. Let's be honest about where we need uh, encouragement, where we need uh, prayer, where we might need accountability. Um, and so, yes, let's 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 make our life aim to repent of sin, but in order to rejoice in Christ, to gaze at His beauty to cherish his forgiveness, to wonder at the majesty of Christ and his goodness. I mean, why would I want to hold back on that and not invite someone into that? Uh, if I don't, well, I just leave them stranded in some kind of performance. So <clears throat> I met with two guys this morning that for coffee and we pursue Christ together and we repented of sin and we rejoice mm-hmm. in Jesus and our first question before getting into things was, hey, is there, is there anything really heavy on anybody's heart this morning? And that creates opportunity not only for repentance, but also for, for care, for c- compassion, for lament, for empathy. And um, as we got into it, uh, I began to talk about this tendency in my life to feel like in the context of ministry, when I see a need as a pastor – I need to meet the need. There's a compulsion. And <clears throat> what the Lord had been really working out was that you need to not meet the need more often, that, I, that you need to, to be quiet and pray and let others step in. And so there was a couple in our hmm. small group who were really quiet, and I could tell that they needed to be drawn out. But the Holy Spirit said, don't meet the need. <laughs> And so I refrained from engaging. And then as we made our way into our discussion, it was about lament. It got deep real quick. And then several opportunities to meet needs. And as people began to articulate their struggles and give their counsel, Mm. I noticed that people began to minister to one another and that those quiet people were drawn out and they were loved and they were counseled. And if I had stepped in, Everyone who paid attention to me and uh, kind of wrapped up the answer and then moved on. <laughs> so, do, Jonathan, you've, uh, you've obviously thought a lot about this, the value of that, you know, repentance and confession and transparency with other fellow Christians. And yet, even with that, even experiencing the freedom that comes from that, is it ever a, a struggle, though, to be transparent in that context, especially as a pastor? Does, does the does the, I don't know, your, your calling as a spiritual leader ever tempt you away from that kind of transparency? If you talk to people in my church, one of the things they'll tell you that they love about the preaching is that they, they always get to see how I've blown it, <laughs> which if I, which at first you're like, wait a second, you know, but, but no, if I, if I'm living the way that I'm talking about being a disciple who repents of sin, rejoices in Christ, well then, yeah. And people appreciate you know, hearing of my weakness and struggle because then, then they can bring their weakness and struggle into that hmm. gospel that's being preached. Their life struggle attaches to my life struggle. They find sympathy and then resolve to embrace the gospel. And, and so so people, people really benefit from that because they tend to professionalize, even as casual as they may be, to professionalize um, pastors mm. and staff, church staff members, and and so when you when we 
reveal our weakness in our struggle and our sin. It dissolves this kind of professional mental image that is actually a defeater to their own sanctification and joy. And in its place, uh, it becomes something that is more biblical and more hopeful and uh, honestly more real. It's interesting that you said you sort of, uh, I think you used the word practice, you know, for so long. It's been such a a way of thinking that it, it sort of maybe become more second nature than it than it would be otherwise. Um, I want to jump into that uh, the gospel and how that fits into this. Uh, your book is called Gospel Centered Discipleship, and if I'm, uh, I would imagine that there's at least a few people listening right now who uh, maybe are rolling their eyes because they're, that term gospel centered gets thrown around so much these days, and you know we can read uh, people online sort of arguing that it's lost its meaning and it's overused and uh, maybe is even sometimes counterproductive, unhelpful because of uh, what it might imply about something. So I wonder if you could explain, why do you think that's an important thing uh, to emphasize, to to put in front of the word discipleship uh, in this topic? Well, I think it's important to put gospel in front of discipleship because of the baggage that we've been talking about, because of the cul-de-sacs of discipleship that we tend to practice. And uh, so many people will judge their discipleship based on their effectiveness of that thing that is most important to them. Justice, mercy, evangelism, personal holiness, spiritual disciplines. A person who comes with the focus of sanctification will judge you know, themselves on how holy or unholy they've been. So they'll be up when they're holy and down when they're not. Um, a kind of roller coaster Christianity. Same thing with people who are multiplying. I haven't made it any you know, converts. I haven't multiplied any disciples. These guys aren't getting it. They're not making other disciples. And suddenly you foist that same performative element of multiplication onto those that you lead. And so in all of these aspects, which are all part of following Jesus, they become an inner checklist. They displace Christ and, and they become the master. And, you know, when you fail master mission, what does he do? When you fail to share the gospel or stand up for justice, Master Mission comes along and he sees you failing on the ground. What does he do? He kicks you. Master Sanctification, you know, you fell at that habitual sin again. What does Master Sanctification do? He comes along and he mocks you. But Jesus, when he sees us failing, when he sees us on the ground, uh, he doesn't mock us or kick us. He dies for us. And then he lifts us up. And so the, the, mm. the centrality of Christ in discipleship is transformative and um, truly molds us into the, the image of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So you published this book about a decade ago now, and that was kind of at the, uh, arguably kind of the start of some of the, the gospel-centered talk and language that, that, again, now is, in at least certain circles, in our circles, is pretty common and well-known. Um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on the use of that term. Uh, do you think it's, uh, has your has your views on the helpfulness of the language changed over the last decade uh, in light of what you've seen, or do you think it's it's really just been a, a maybe a, a very positive kind of development in the way we think about a whole host of issues? I think it's done a lot of good. Now, there are always caricatures and exaggerations. To some people, it can sound like, you know, are you totally reformed? 
Um, and if you're not, well, then you're on the B team of Christianity. That's not how I view it, and that's not how uh, it's intended. Um, that's mm. not how I think Jesus views it, but that aberration is out there for a reason. And uh, <clears throat> there are people who treat gospel-centered as a kind of theological elitism and then you know, peer down the nose at, at other traditions yeah. and other theological convictions. And, and that just happens when young Christians get their hands on new concepts. It's less about the concept, and in mm. this case, I think, and, and more about the immaturity of yeah. how people have used it and used it to leverage their own worth. So in using gospel-centered, they have replaced Jesus with a theological construct. And uh, so it's not truly gospel-centered or Christ-centered. I just think this term is so thoroughly biblical and so hope-giving um, and so great that it, it just is not worth surrendering. Um, I'm a writer. I don't like that clunky word, gospel-centered. Like, you know, <laughs> do you put the hyphen? Do you not? Do you, what do you capitalize? It's uh, too many syllables. It doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> but, you know, here we are 10 years later with this book and then, yeah. you know, more, many more years later uh, <laughs> since the, the kind of gospel retrieval movement started and uh, we're still using it and it's still helpful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it is so interesting that this, this term that, as you say, is, you know, if we think about what it's saying, it, it is fundamentally a Jesus-focused, not human-focused kind of idea. It's pushing us away from looking at ourselves. And yet, as you rightly said, I think in some quarters, it has become this identity badge or this language that kind of marks out people in a certain way that is either really desirable or it's maybe undesirable. It's just fascinating to me that the that this term uh, has kind of evolved in that way. But, but as you say, you don't want to abandon it just because of that. Yeah, in the next breath, I also want to apologize where the term has been used to hurt people or it's been used in unkind and arrogant ways. Mm, yeah. So you write in your book that in your youth, you had a short view of people. Uh, what did that look like? What do you mean by that? And what did that look like in contrast to perhaps a longer view? Of well, people? yeah, this is from the introduction to the new book where I'm reflecting on a decade of discipling from you know the writing of that book. And the comment is essentially saying, in my youth, I had a short view of people. I wanted to get the gospel out. I wanted to see people as a young church planter come to Jesus. And that's so important. But the short view was, do you believe or do you not believe? Uh, what are your obstacles to belief? And can I give you the apologetic to overcome your obstacle? Um, <clears throat> so the short view of, the peop of people was, do you believe the gospel or do you not believe the gospel? Do you get it or do you don't get it? And now, a decade later, I would say God has taught me to take a longer view of people. That It's not just getting the gospel out, but it's getting it down into the recesses of our hearts where we really struggle, where we wrestle, where there's fear and anxiety and insecurity. That, that, that the gospel of grace needs to make its way deep down into our longings our desires and displace some of those things, those besetting sins, those broken identities mm. that make life hard and difficult and Jesus obscure and to then clear them away to see the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus to kind of be re-evangelized over and over. 
And uh, this is really some of the best advice that I can give and that I've received is to take the long view of people, to, to see them as Christ sees them, glorified at the right hand. Colossians 3, you know, raised up with Christ in the heavenly places. Um, and then work backwards instead of treating people as saved or unsaved full stop or getting the gospel and not getting the gospel full stop. But to recognize as a Christian, you are in, in the presence of Christ. You're a glorified saint. And then to treat them with the love, the love and dignity that accords with that kind of status instead of looking at people through the lens of their sin first and then really not getting past that. Um, I mean, just think about God. He has been so mm. patient with many of my unbel unbeliefs and bad views. Uh, I mean, I've been <laughs> had bad views of creation, eschatology, soteriology, the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself. And not once have I been struck by lightning, you know. Um, yet his scripture is clear. And teachers have come along and corrected me. But God has taken such a long view of me. I'm almost 50, and I'm yeah. still working out my salvation with fear and trembling. And yeah. God is so patient and gracious. Yeah, for as sanctified as we think we are even at our best, Jesus clearly sees so many ways in which we are falling short. And yet, as you say, he still he still embraces us and, and stays, stays with us. So what would you say to the person who, maybe when it comes to a doctrinal issue, um, you know, the motivation to kind of, quote unquote, pounce on someone and try to, uh, you know, nip something in the bud almost, a bad way of thinking, is maybe this, they feel like it's this desire to help the person. They're worried about where that doctrine, where that line of thinking could take them if they keep going. And they want to, they want to stop it if they can. So how do you balance that, the desire to, to help someone to not fall into grievous error with this long view? Yeah, well, I think the, taking the long view, people doesn't imply that you surrender the truth. I think it's a different way of handling the truth. Instead of firing bullets, you're massaging the truth in over time, and you don't need people to get to get it every single time. I mean, parents that treat children like that mm -hmm. are legalistic and you know um, suffocating. You can't pounce on your child's every error. It's dispiriting to them. It's exasperating to them. Uh, there, there are things to address and there are things to overlook. And in a similar way, so has God patiently addresses sins and struggles in seasons, not all at once. That's the mercy of God. He could easily just level us with you know total knowledge of our sin in one moment. But he instead mercifully awakens us to things convicts us and leads us to Christ. And so in a sense, God is okay with error and struggle. And uh, so it's important to discern when the right time is to, to respond to someone's doctrinal error in a small group. It may be that on the spot, it's so flagrant and it's so damaging that we need to say, but maybe, maybe it's something that will be corrected by the group that's not that big, or maybe it's something that you kind of one-on-one -on -one in a cough over a coffee, kind of resurface and, and revisit with them and, and see why that belief is there. I would imagine that there might be some people listening right now who they start to get a little nervous. They start to get a little anxious whenever this topic of discipleship comes up, whether because they have 
been in some kind of discipling context relationship, uh, and it's been really difficult and really harmful to them. It's it's felt uh, discouraging or hurtful in some way, or maybe on the other side, um, they they feel like they they feel uh, like they should be discipling someone. They should be kind of investing in other Christians intentionally in some way, and yet they just feel uh, in, uh, inadequate to it or feel intimidated by that idea. I wonder if you could speak to both of those people. What what love, what encouragement would you offer to someone in either of those two spots? Well, to the person who's struggling or been hurt, I would just say, I'm so sorry. And Jesus understands if you've been mistreated or misunderstood. Jesus himself, the Son of God, uh you know, at the right hand of the majesty on high, is also described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that he was sorrowful even unto death. So he knows what it's like to be misunderstood, to be scorned, to be betrayed, to be rejected. And he is a weeping Christ. So if you need to weep, weep next to him. Lift up your sorrows and then lift up your eyes to your true mentor, your true disciple, your true teacher, your true and enduring and eternal and sympathetic Savior and King, and bring your pain to Him. And then as you encounter the man of sorrows, follow him. Follow that person Hmm. who also walks righteously, who also is tenderhearted. Take his instruction to heart and try to forgive those that have influence you in a poor negative way we are to pray that every day in the lord's prayer you know forgive my trespasses as i forgive those who have trespassed against me it's it's endemic to a gospel-centered life um you know there's only one mentor discipler who will never disappoint so lay your heart on him put your faith in him trust in his Mm. promises He's the only leader who always lives up to his beliefs. Every other leader will fail and not live up to their beliefs. There's only one Messiah. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to, to help us all, I think, think a little bit more uh, Jesus-centeredly about the gospel or, and about discipleship, what we're called to do uh, as followers of Jesus. Uh, it's been my pleasure, and thanks for having me. It's so good to dip into some of these important topics. That was Jonathan Dodson on discipleship. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Gospel-Centered Discipleship. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.